0: Good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs and I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. And if we haven't met yet, just want to encourage you, we'd love to talk to you after the service and get to know each other better. I appreciate John making those announcements and really would be great to see as many of you come out to the picnic as as you can. Uh, If you didn't bring a lunch or you forgot, uh, there's options that are really close by. There's a subway and a no-frills up there, and Blue Mountain Park is just down the road that way, and if you want to go onto our Instagram account, our media guy Noah even filmed a little uh, drive-by way to get to Blue Mountain Park and put, yeah, there you go. Clapping for Noah, right? Yeah, good job, Noah. Don't watch the video while trying to drive at the same time. It will not work out well. I promise you that. Well, several years ago, a family friend was looking forward to his retirement where he could stop working and do the thing that he was really passionate about, golf. Unfortunately for him, early into those retirement days, he suffered from a major back injury. Now it was too painful to even hit a putter. So mini golf was out of the question, let alone a whole eight uh, an entire 18-hole course. So he decided to do the other thing that brought purpose and significance to his life. He decided to go back to work. However, his company didn't want him back. They had since filled his position with someone who was much younger and cheaper to employ. Now this guy had no idea what to do with himself, and he actually began to suffer from some depression. You see, he had built his life on these two things his career and golf. But now that both of them were taken away from him, he felt purposeless. Like he didn't know what to do with himself, he didn't know who he was. It was as if he had lost his identity. And many of us, we build our lives on similar things like hobbies and a career. We find our identity in our success or in our wealth, our education, the degrees we have hung on the wall, or even uh, things like relationships. You know, the fact that I'm a, a spouse or a parent. But just like that friend, those things can be taken away from us in a moment, and when they are, we can face a lot of fear and uncertainty, like we're lost without them. And when those things are stripped away, we can feel purposeless. So lacking this identity that those things give us, then we're often tempted to invest ourselves in the next thing that comes along in order to give our lives meaning. But those things themselves may just disappear and leave us feeling empty as well. And this is what we see happening in the book of Genesis in chapter 11. Humanity is attempting to build their lives on something that cannot sustain them. Something that cannot last. And when it is taken away from them, they find themselves dazed and confused. But there is an alternative. We can build our lives on a base that is so solid that it can never be broken or moved. A foundation for your identity that if everything else is taken away from you, you can still know who you are and to whom you belong. We see in Genesis chapter 11 that we need to build our lives on God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 11, or sorry, 1 to 9 of chapter 11. It says, Now the whole world had had one language and a common speech, As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that people were building. The Lord said, if it's one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city, and that is why it is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now this is a really small account, but I think it raises many questions for us. First of all, is the point of this story to tell us how we got so many languages throughout the world? Francis Duncan credits the story as giving him his livelihood, he said to me this morning, as an ESL teacher. There you go. Or what is the point of the tower, right? Also, God, to me, I don't know how you feel, he seems strangely jealous of the people and what they're capable of, right? Is he threatened by their progress? The people say that their greatest fear is to be scattered over the face of the earth, and that's just what God does to them. Why would he do that? Is he just being vindictive? As I try and answer these questions and others that you may have, let's keep in mind the context of this account. It is written within the larger narrative of Scripture, but specifically Genesis 1-11 to that has been the series that we've been in for the last number of weeks. We've seen in this series that these accounts were written to the ancient Israelites to give them an understanding of the origins of the world and themselves. You see, it tells them who the Creator is and what He is like, why there is brokenness and evil in the world and the role that humans have played in that. Most importantly, Genesis 1-11, it tells us that despite humanity's continued defiance of God's intentions for us, He still has a plan to restore the world and humanity to a perfect state of wholeness and peace with each other and with him, just like it was at the very beginning. And undeterred by our rebellion, God's plan involves partnering with humanity. So, the first thing we read in these verses of Genesis 11 is that the whole world had one language and a common speech. Now, this does not mean that everyone spoke only one dialect. And that the multitude of languages we have today is the result of God scattering them and confusing the language of the world. You see, if we were to go back just one chapter to chapter 10, and we see in verses 5 and 20 and 31, people already spoke different languages belonging to specific people groups. Most likely what uh, it's referring to here by one language and common speech is that similar to today, where most countries do business globally in English, but still have their own native language they speak. It's suggesting to us that the world at that time also had a common language. Then in verse 2, it says that the people moved eastward, that they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. However, the text doesn't tell us where they moved eastward from, right? Just that they moved east. There are several little details like this in this short account um, that we may tend to overlook or be quick to dismiss. However, these details provide us with important clues of what's actually taking place here in this story, and they matter a great deal. In the book of Genesis, moving east is symbolic of moving away from God. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin, they are removed from the garden and then they move east of Eden. In Genesis 4, after Cain kills Abel, he goes out of the Lord's presence, moving east. Now this isn't a condemnation about where you live on the map, as if Vancouver in the west is holier than Toronto in the east, although some may, you know, argue that. But rather, the text says that the people moved east. It's a metaphor to say that they are separating themselves from God. Verse 2 says that the people also settled in the plain of Shinar. This is also a concern, right? Back in Genesis 1, verse 28, when God made the humans, he blessed them and he gave them a command. And we see this repeated after the flood in Genesis 9, 1, where he tells them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Fill the earth. But here we see that they are not only moving away from God and his blessing, but also his plans for their lives. They were to fill the earth, but are instead settling in one place. They are ignoring the creator's command, his instructions for the world's blessing, and for their own good. By moving east, away from God's presence, settling in Shinar instead of filling the whole earth, this story is describing how once again, humanity is choosing to do life on our own terms instead of obeying the Lord. Choosing autonomy rather than living in dependence on the Creator as we were designed. Just as Adam and Eve did in chapter 3. And we remember how well that worked out for them, don't we? The next detail the story tells us in verse 3 is that they decided to build their city and tower with a new technology, bricks. So bricks were a new innovation for the people, and it enabled them to build this tower so tall they describe it as reaching to the heavens. Now, we might not think much of building materials when we read through our scriptures. However, the ancient Israelites to whom this was written to, they certainly thought a lot about brick, Right? They thought bricks were no good. It's why they used stone in all of their architecture. Brick was inherently weak. It couldn't stand up long against the elements. And one of the consequences that the author of the story is drawing out for the audience is that this whole project that the people are building is built on a shaky foundation. And then in verse 4, we learn why they built it. They say, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now this idea of a name, or making a name, right, or naming something, this is all pretty significant in Scripture. We see in Genesis chapter 2, uh, when God brings all the animals To Adam, he gives him the responsibility of naming the animals. And this shows how naming implies having a certain degree of dominion or authority over what is being named. This is why later on in Exodus, when Moses meets the Lord, he asks the Lord, tell me your name so I can tell the Israelites who's sending me. And God He's a little elusive with Moses, right? He doesn't say, by the way, my name is whatever. He says instead, I am who I am. By answering like this, God is saying to people, hey, you can know me by my faithful character and my actions rather than just the name. But at the same time, he is telling them, you have no control over me, that I am the ruler of the entire cosmos. But by desiring to make a name for themselves, these builders of this city and this tower, they want to exercise dominion for themselves. Right? They want control. This is not merely about wanting a reputation or a quest for fame. Rather, it's about seeking significance independent of God. Finding success apart from him in order to give themselves the identity that they desire. Now, archaeologists, they tell us of huge buildings like this tower called ziggurats. I have a, there's one there. And you can see, um, these were built in ancient Mesopotamia. And you can see how they had these staircases that went all the way from the bottom all the way to the very top, where at the very um, top of the tower, there was a small temple or a shrine lay. And these towers were built to reach the heavens in order to make it easier for the gods to come down. They would come down the steps. One of the most famous of these ziggurats was built for the Babylonian god Marduk, called the house of the foundation of heaven and earth. Another nearby one was called the house of the link between heaven and earth. But the tower that the Babylonites build here in Genesis 11 was not built to bring them closer to God, Rather, it's fundamentally about their quest for greatness and autonomy. The city and tower symbolize the ability of humanity to defy the rule of heaven. We will make a name for ourselves, they say. We will have dominion over our own lives, control our own destiny. Why worship God when we can show through our our cooperation, our human ingenuity and technology, that we can do it on our own. The arrogance that these people show is incredible. Yet despite their confidence, they still have a great fear. Their fear is, we better build this, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the earth. They are scared to be scattered, to be lost or confused. But it's ironic, right? They believe they can obtain power and success and security through their cooperation with each other, through their work, through their innovation, and that these things will provide a safeguard for them. Yet they are not afraid to abandon God, their creator. They have no fear that walking away from him will get them lost. And then we have verse 5. It is the turning point of the entire story. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. Not only is this the turning point of the story, but it's quite literally the center of the story. Sometimes biblical texts are crafted chiastically. That's when a sentence or a thought at the beginning of the passage has a parallel sentence or idea later on in the story. And so what this does, this chiastic structure, is it's used to reveal the major point of the story right in the middle. Theologian Bruce Wolfke he demonstrates in this sort of parallel V, the chiastic structure of this passage, showing how it all leads to that X in the middle. And the Lord came down. That is the major emphasis of this text. This scene is also kind of funny, too. Think about it for a moment. The people are building this huge tower, so big it'll reach to the heavens. And yet, compared to God, it's still so tiny that he has to leave heaven and come down to earth just in order to see it. His coming down should also reassure us. God doesn't just judge from on high. He's not distant, nor is he detached. Rather, the Bible goes out of its way to describe how God draws near to humanity and how he investigates thoroughly before bringing a ruling and that all of his judgments are valid and just. In Genesis 3, we saw how the Lord walked with humanity in the cool of the day. So he walked with them. In Genesis 4, he goes to great lengths to warn Cain about the temptation of the sin that he faces with his anger. And then we also see how close he is to them because he hears Abel's blood crying out to him from the ground. In Genesis 5, we read about Enoch who walked with God, and God obviously walks with Enoch too. And then in chapter 6, we see how God saw the wickedness of humanity and yet Noah's faithfulness hadn't escaped his view either. All of these different stories and the ways that they describe God being close and seeing these things, they demonstrate for us that God is not ignorant nor is he blind to the thoughts and the actions of humanity, despite our best efforts to keep him distant. He still knows us intimately. And He knows the good and the bad and the ugly. And the purpose of this city and tower of Babel is not good. It is only bad and ugly. It demonstrates human rebellion. That they have moved away from God, disobeyed His commands to fill the earth. They have chosen to make a name for themselves rather than praise the Creator They are seeking autonomy rather than living in reliance on the Lord. And instead of acknowledging the King of Heaven, they plan to enthrone themselves through their technological advancements and human progress. So when God judges them in verse 6, it may be difficult for us to swallow. And judgment is always difficult. But let's keep in mind that God knows everything Intimately, what these people are up to and what they are up to is not good. It's not good for them and their relationship with him. It's not good for their relationship with the earth. And despite what they believe, it's not even good for themselves. In verse 6, the Lord says, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing That they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Seems like a harsh punishment. But I don't think God is only punishing the people in this passage for their rebellion. I actually think within his judgment, he is also showing them mercy. Mercy in the long run. You see, God comes down and he sees that the people believe that they have found success and purpose in their project without him. And he notes that if they keep going this way, if they keep believing that they can find success after success, one after the other, then they will start to believe that they can do this life on their own. They will believe that walking away from God is fine and that they can get along just as well without a relationship with the Creator. But that is not how He designed this world, or us humans, to work. We were designed to be in a right relationship with the Creator, to live depending on Him, looking to Him as the giver of every good gift, including our ability to innovate. We need God to guide us ethically on how and when to use technology, to help us decipher when being progressive is a step in the right direction or when it's leading us down a path of destruction. Ultimately, we need God, our creator, to give us our purpose and our identity. Now, we may feel like we get along fine without God, but one day when those things that we have built our lives on are taken away from us, like they were with my family friend when he experienced the loss of his career and golf, we can end up feeling lost and despair. Or what if those things are never taken away from us? I think that's worse. What if we only ever experienced success in this life living independently from God and we never come to the end of our rope? You see, I think God actually has incredible compassion on these people by confusing them and scattering them. Yes, it was their greatest fear, they say in verse 4. Yet I believe without God, they were already lost. They just didn't know it. And because they didn't know it, they had no reason to search for him. They had no reason to cry out to him. They had no reason to build their lives on him. And that's often what we see in people who have success. If it's, whether it's business or sports, relationships, success in these areas, but not success in knowing God. Right? Like the people of Babel, they can build their lives on these other things, and if they never experience failure or defeat, if none of these things are ever taken away from them, then from the Bible's point of view, they're actually in a really scary place. If people feel like they have no reason to turn to God, no need for a savior because they have built their tower to heaven and they are completely satisfied, then what are the chances they will ever turn from those ways and reconcile with God? Yet the Bible is clear that one day God will hold all of us accountable for our lives, not just did we live a good life, Not only how did we treat those around us and care for this world, but also how we honored and loved God who made us. In Romans 1, it says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks as they began to think up foolish ideas of what God is like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. You see, all who feel like they can live their lives free of God now, may only discover one day when it's too late how lost they really are. How their lives were really built on bricks, a shaky foundation that eventually will crumble. And so it is out of compassion that God confuses and scatters the Babylonites. At first glance, it may seem mean-spirited, but it's actually grace. You see, when those other things are taken away from you and you're feeling that's when you're lost, this is when you are in the perfect place to be found, found by God. A number of years ago, a relative of mine would have her world turned upside down. She had built her life on a relationship, and that relationship came crashing down. You see, the other person wasn't who they said they were. So the whole relationship was built on a lie. I didn't know that this was going on, but this relative, they posted something a little sad and cryptic on Facebook, and so I just sent them a private message just saying, "Hey, if you need anything, Andrew and I are here for you, we will be praying for you." And within minutes, I got an immediate private message back saying, "Dave, I need you to lead me to Jesus." Her lostness made her want to be found. That week she came over to our home, we prayed with her, gave her a Bible, and by the grace of God, she has been walking with Jesus ever since. Now this does not mean she does not experience other devastating disappointments in life. She certainly has. But now she's no longer lost or without a purpose. You see, the suffering still hurts. But now that her life is built on God through faith in Christ, it means that her hope is eternal. We sang about that, right? It can never be taken away. It can never be lost or come crashing down. As the author of Hebrews says, she has this hope that is an anchor for her soul, firm and secure, because it is with Christ in heaven. It's when we realize that we are no longer able to live independently that we often turn and start relying on the living God just as we were designed to. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians of his own experience in this, he says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded to the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, that is when I'm strong. Paul boasts about his weaknesses and pain because he now sees how they can actually be used as a gift, opening our eyes to the liability of our abilities or how we are so often blinded by success. Paul realized that if his life was built on his successes alone, then it was a foundation that would eventually crumble. But from his thorn in the flesh... It caused him to build his life on God in Christ, to depend on Christ daily, which Jesus says to him, That's exactly how you were designed to live. When you live like that, when you live weak, depending on me, turning to me, that's exactly how you're to live. That's solid. That is success. Because God's power is perfected in human weakness and dependence not in our own success and self-sufficiency. So build your life on God. Find your success in how much you can depend on him. Throughout this series, we have seen a pattern emerge from each of these stories. God comes in and he gives grace. Then the humans rebel. God brings judgment, but then he brings grace again. We see this in the garden, right? Where he blesses the first couple with everything that they need to flourish. They disobey by taking the forbidden fruit. Then they're removed from the garden. However, God still blesses them with grace. He clothes them, right? He still gives them the ability to produce offspring. They can still eat food from the ground, right? And he still promises that one day to defeat evil through their offspring, We see the same pattern emerge in the other stories of grace, rebellion, judgment, and then grace again in the story of Cain, and then again in the flood account. However, this story seems to end on a whimper, right? The people are confused, they're scattered. The end? I don't think so. Just as the stories before ended with God extending grace This story also gives us a note about future hope. As we turn to the end of chapter 11, we're greeted with another genealogy, and we are introduced to a couple, a man named Abram and his wife Sarai. The story shifts from looking at the world as a whole to now focusing on how God will continue to faithfully live up to his promises to restore creation and defeat evil through partnering with humanity, now through this the life of this chosen family whom he has called to trust and walk faithfully with him. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, we see how God doubles down on his promises through a promise he makes to Abraham, which was one of the most famous promises in all of Scripture. He says to him, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. You don't have to make a name for yourself. I'll do it for you. And you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth, all those people I've scattered throughout the entire world speaking their different languages, they will be blessed through you. And the rest of the book goes on to show the successes and the failures of Abraham and Sarai and their descendants as they attempt to build their lives on God. But more than that, it shows an account of how dependable and trustworthy the Lord is to them. This whole series that we've been going through in Genesis 1-11, it's all about origins, about who we are and who God is. What does it mean for our lives, purpose, and identity? My challenge for each one of us is to go from here and pondering a question, taking time to really consider, who am I? What's my identity built on? What am I building my life on? Is it my career? Is it financial success and comfort? Is it family and friends? None of these things are bad. They're great things. They can bring us great joy. But none of them were created for us to build our lives on them. They can't sustain that sort of weight and pressure. They're not designed to last. What are you building your life on? Jesus says in Luke 6, as for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid a foundation on a rock And when a flood came and the torrent struck that house and could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Jesus encourages us to come to him, to listen to his words, and to build our lives on God through him. I invite the worship team to come on up. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your great loving kindness towards us. And as this story demonstrates, sometimes we don't even recognize uh, your loving kindness because it comes to us through painful experiences. But God, I'm so grateful that you are one who promises to never leave us or forsake us and you promise in your word that you can use all things to the good of those who love you, Lord. And Lord, we love you. We pray that you would help us to love you more. Help us to strip away things that are taking too much priority in our lives, things that we're putting too much stock in when we should be putting our hope and faith and trust in you and building for ourselves treasure in heaven Lord, thank you for your forgiveness and the hope that we have in Jesus. Oh, we love you so much and we thank you that you loved us first. In Christ's name we pray, amen.